Welcome to The Storytellers, the radio show and podcast that features those who choose to leave their mark on the world through the art of story. I'm your host, Grace Salmon. I look forward to our time together today. Now, let's meet our storyteller. Virginia Cantra is the New York Times best-selling author of almost 30 creative, and I will say very cleverly imagined, novels. She is married to her high school sweetheart who owns a coffee shop who keeps her stocked in wonderful stories and caffeine. Virginia, thank you so much for coming to the Storyteller's Microphone. Grace, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks so much for asking me. I have so many things I want to talk to you about, but let's start out with how you have in several of your novels really a fresh spin on some American classic characters. Talk about that. Well, I think I've started to return to what I'll call the stories that shaped me. I grew up in a house that was full of books. My dad was an English professor and our house was always full of his books, which he never censored our reading, as well as a bunch of childhood classics from my mother's side of the family. And on late at night when the library was closed or on weekends when my mother was just too busy to take me, I browsed my parents' bookshelves. So I think of these as the stories that formed me with both Little Women, which was originally a gift from my grandmother to my sister and me because she thought it was a proper story for girls, to uh, The Wizard of Oz, which I first encountered as a copy dated Christmas 1909. Oh, lovely. gift from a distant Aunt Hildy. These, These were just part of my literary DNA growing up. But there, of course, was a lot of things that either were completely over my head in terms of vocabulary or content, or things that I simply didn't notice at the time. And I think especially with Little Women, it prompted me to bring my adult perspective to the stories, so that there were things that I simply didn't notice that then became the most compelling part of the story for me. And so I aged in each case the characters up to what I think of as a contemporary coming of age. I think because of the pandemic and because of the internet that We now come of age in our 20s and our 30s. We're launching in a way that earlier generations were forced to do much sooner. And we're still looking for a roadmap on those journeys, right? So that's what I have been trying to do with the March Sisters, with Dorothy Gale, and with my current work in progress, which is called Anne of a Different Island. Oh, I want to hear about all of them. I've had the great great enjoyment of reading The fairy tale Life of Dorothy Gale. So let's jump in there. It was absolutely delightful to meet Dorothy in a very, very different green place. Let's hear more about it. Well, when I started writing the book, it was during the pandemic. 
And I was desperate to go to escape. I mean, we were in lockdown. I wanted to go over the rainbow. Actually, I wanted to go anywhere. And Dorothy's destination is always the Emerald City. So initially I thought, Seattle, perfect. But as I got into it, that didn't feel magical enough. Even people who haven't read L. Frank Baum's original book have probably seen that 1939 classic movie. And there's a moment, this iconic movie moment, when the Aunt Em and Uncle Henry's farmhouse lands in Munchkin land, and everything up to that point has been gray and in sepia tones. And little Dorothy Gale opens the door of her <laughs> uncle's farmhouse and we see Technicolor. We are in a magic and very different place. And that was really what I wanted to give my readers. I wanted to share that sort of sense of, of possibility and adventure and joy and color. So it was actually my husband who suggested that I think big and instead of to the Emerald City, take her to the Emerald Isle. So Dublin. The problem with that was we were in, we couldn't travel. So I went to um, I went to the, my friend the internet and subscribed to the Irish Times and started a correspondence with a professor of popular literature at Trinity College Dublin. Um, and Google Map became my very best friend. And I pretty much had the book completed when we were finally able to go to Ireland. What I didn't expect when I, from the moment we got on the bus at dawn and trundled over the River Liffey, and I like grabbed my husband's arm and I'm like, this is the River Liffey. I knew where I was. I had come home. Um, and that pink sky, the, I, I don't think our listeners can see the cover, but there's this incredible pink sky on the cover of the fairy tale life of Dorothy Gale, which was actually taken from a photograph that I took of dawn on over the Grand Canal. Uh, so it, it just was a it was just a, a wonderful place. And I hope that readers will fall a little bit in love with the people and and the setting of Ireland the way that I did. Oh, I'm sure they will. So in some ways, both in the March Sisters, two books, I believe it is, and in this book, you're true to the story, but you take twists and turns. How do you decide that as creative author? I think it's always really important uh, for me to stay true to the heart of the story, which in my case is what drives the characters. But I also think that if I don't bring, and, and it's there's a, a challenge when you're retelling a classic, because everyone has their own memories of reading the book or of watching the movie and their own feelings that are associated with that. So if you bring your memories and your emotions and your experience to these classic stories, you can piss readers off because you are treading on their, their cherished childhood. Um, but at the same time, if you don't 
go there, if you don't have something to say, if you don't bring your own truth to the story, you're doing a disservice both to the archetypes that were created and to your readers and ultimately to yourself. So when I do it, as I said, I have a different perspective now than I did when I started with the March sisters. I think I, could, I had not even really noticed any of Meg's domestic difficulties when I originally read Little Women and Good Wives. When I read The Wizard of Oz books, and there were 14 books, you know, along the library shelves that my, my like, kindly librarian like led me to each one in order. I didn't think of it as a feminist journey, as a women's journey. Didn't I did not know, for example, that L. Frank Baum was married to one, uh, the daughter of one of the founders of the suffragette movement in the United States. I didn't know that his wedding vows were so unusual that they were reported in the local newspaper because the bride promised exactly the same things as the groom. And this is in, you know, the, this was before the book was published in 1900. I didn't think that, okay, the women of power in Oz are all women. The ruler, ultimate ruler, Ozma, was for a brief while a boy. Uh, none of this really impinged on my consciousness. What I did know was that Dorothy was an ordinary girl like me. And she has nothing but kindness and kick-ass shoes. She does and, indeed. And yet she not only finds a way to make her own dreams come true, to find the power that's inside herself, but she gives her friends and companions the power to realize their dreams too. She's a catalyst for all the action in the story. It's a uniquely uh, feminine journey if you will. I mean, it's, it's a hero's journey. She goes, it's, she retrieves the magic, whatever, or makes, learns the thing that will change her world. But it's also one in which compassion, understanding, tolerance, walk with her. And I think those are all really important things to talk about right now. And you, to talk about the feminist journey is very important to you. And you have found a different way to tell that and bring it to today. Would that be a fair statement? That's a fair statement. Yeah. I think there's, there's the hero's journey, which as writers we're we're sort of taught, this is the, the model for star Wars and, you know, a lot of, a lot of the popular Mar the Marvel universe. I think the heroine's journey for a large part of, of literary history, women's voices have been sidelined or silenced. And yet you get these extraordinary new world characters. And I'm thinking here particularly of Louisa May Alcott's March sisters. You know, they're not sweethearts. They're not sidekicks. They are the heroes of their own story. Dorothy Gale is resilient um, in the face of adversity. And yet at the same time, you know, she still, she gets tired and hungry and cries. Um, so, I think telling those stories gives us a wonderful opportunity to think about how we can be resilient, how we can get through tough times. So yeah, I think, I think that's an important message to share. 
without so being you, preachy. <laughs> yes, and, and you're not. You're delightful. I, I found myself so in the story um, with the Dorothy Gale book at times, where then when there was some nuance that threw me back to the classic, I went, oh, wait, oh, this is funny. And then I had to kind of reconnect <laughs> some pieces. So I think you did a really excellent job of that. You referenced just a moment ago sort of the Star Wars trajectory. You are a New York Times bestselling author. That is humongous, um, we, uh, particularly with a million books a year or whatever the latest statistic is. Um, how did that happen for you? With which books did it happen? And how did it change you? It hasn't changed me much at all. I, I hit the first time with a novella in an anthology where I was lucky enough to be paired with some other really talented authors. And I've been grateful to have the support of my editor, Cindy Huang at Berkeley. I think right now the market is in flux, I think. But of course I haven't, I've been writing for 25 years so there's never been a time when the market hasn't been in flux. Mm -hmm. I think there are some amazing novels being told, but I think it's increasingly, and I'm so grateful that indie publishing has given more authors a chance to tell their truths and find their readership. But I also think that there's a danger with so many stories out there. Um, on the one hand, we have more platforms for more diverse voices, and I think that that only helps us all. But I think that it can be very hard for readers faced with so many distractions, both from their screens, from the headlines that are clamoring for their attention, um, and then when they do turn to a book, how do they choose? Who curates their reading for them? Is it simply a matter of price points? Is it a matter of recommendations? The online community has tried to step into that void and I think can be really successful at it. I think personal recommendations can be great. I think booksellers and librarians have a vital role to play. And all of it feels very overwhelming. <laughs> it, can, it can indeed. It can indeed. Uh, so I think we have to ultimately go back to what's the story? What do you have to say? Well, let's go back there with you. I don't want to put you in a niche that says, okay, so you wrote about the March sisters. Now it's the Wizard of Oz. I do want to hear about your next book, but is that now a niche for you? Do you go there first to think of your next book to write? I'm starting to find, because I'm identifying where my voice came from and where did I learn about love and relationships and navigating my road. And so I have been going back to these early books. Some of them are a natural fit. I mean, Little Women, who, who, what writer hasn't dreamed of herself as Joe? The Wizard of Oz was a little bit more unusual 
in the sense that nobody goes, yes, I'm going to write a rom-com, you know, about Dorothy Gale. That's just not a place that, that you necessarily think of. It's a children's story. But I think what going to those familiar stories lets you do is it lets you access that emotional power. I think in a story like The Wizard of Oz, I that book, it's, it's really the favorite of my, the stories I've told. Um, I think it stands as quite independent of either the L. Frank Baum children's story or the 1939 movie. But I had so much fun putting in the Easter eggs. Mm-hmm. I, I had fun. So I think you can read the book without knowing anything about The Wizard of Oz. But it's also true that everybody knows something about The Wizard of Oz. Uh, and so so for that, it's like a little, a little wink, a tip of the hat. When my boys were young, I coached their Odyssey of the Mind team. Oh, yes. And for listeners who are unfamiliar with Odyssey of the Mind, Children are given, students are given problems to solve, story, story problems. So it'll be something like take a two by four, a light bulb and a purple balloon and make a, an electric car. I mean, it, it's not, not quite that absurd, but you have these disparate yes. elements and they have to make a creative whole. And there's a sort of sense of the whole thing has to run but it has to be believable. It has to be entertaining. And I think telling, doing a retelling is sort of like co- coaching Odyssey of the Mind. You have all these kind of fun elements and it sparks your own creativity to be forced to make something out of it that runs. Well, and you've done such a delightful job in The Fairy Tale Life of Dorothy Gale, which comes out very, very soon. And right behind that, Tell us a little bit about Anne of... Anne of a Different Island, which, of course, is based on the classic Canadian novels, um, the Anne of Green Gables stories. So in that case, it was actually my editor once the one who suggested that. And I resisted the idea initially, because while Anne were formative, formative books for me, I didn't have a way into the story in the March Sisters series and in the fairy tale life of Dorothy Gale, both of them are written in a world in which the inspirational novel has not yet been written. So the March Sisters, there, there was no Louisa May Alcott. There was no, they are, they are it. Um, in, without spoilers, in the fairy tale life of Dorothy Gale, the Wizard of Oz as L. Frank Baum wrote it does not exist. In Anne of a Different Island, I wanted to talk about both the ways that fiction sustains us in hard times, the way it comforts us, the way it can be a roadmap for our lives, but also the ways in which it's no substitute for living. That ultimately we have to make our own choices and write our own stories. And so, until I had that part of it figured out, I didn't have a book. But I did go back to my editor and say, okay, here's what I want to do. So 
my Anne is um, a teacher in Chicago who graduates live. Her graduation is live streamed during the pandemic. And she gets a teaching job initially remotely. Oh, my. And eventually is forced home to Mackinac Island, Michigan. Another island. I can't wait to read that book. Um, I was a big fan of Anne with an E, um, the PBS series. Um, you've done such a beautiful job. And I have to say, Virginia, that one of the things I love is that there is such a strong message in each of your novels. Um, but again, it doesn't hit you over the head. It's just empowering and exciting. So I congratulate you along with all the New York Times bestselling types of people. And thanks for being with us here today on the Storyteller's Microphone. Grace, thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast chatting with you. I hope we have a chance to do it again. This has been a copyrighted episode of The Storytellers by Grace Salmon and Authors on the Air, Global Radio Network. That concludes this episode of The Storytellers. I'm so glad you could be part of the story today. I hope you share the stories, tell your own, and come back for another episode. Because when our stories are told, everything changes. I'm Grace Salmon. <laughs>